in life where it's like, ah, that door's locked. It's the wrong door. No, that's the wrong door too. Try this one. Oh, I'm messing up the ladies. No, it's still the wrong door. This one. And we just kind of get. <sighs> and like the more doors you knock on. Nope. Nope. Still not it. Anybody home? Oh, there we go. We kind of run through life knocking on doors, right? And then we get desperate and we get to a point where we're not even thinking about the doors that we're knocking on. We're just going to any door that'll open. You know what I mean? Like, like there's a door that we should walk through. There's a really important door that we're supposed to go to and walk through. But we get wrapped up and, and go into all the doors and just trying to find one that opens that we aren't paying attention if it's the right door. We just kind of lost track of whether it was the good door or not. Luke chapter 5, verse 17, we're looking at doors and a lot of things today. We're continuing on in our, our study of the book of Luke, and uh, this, is, this is a great text. This is one I've been looking forward to for quite some time. I'm out of breath. I'm not a runner. Yeah, everyone's judging me right now. He, he only ran like, ran like 10 steps. How can he be out of breath? I have asthma, and I use that as an excuse as often as I can, so just leave me alone. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Now on one of those days while he was teaching, Jesus was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So the setting is a house. That's not really mentioned here in the book of Luke, but we can get from some of the other accounts that Jesus is teaching in a house. And while he's teaching in a house, there are Pharisees, teachers of the law, sitting nearby, and they've come from a long way. They've come from Galilee, Judea, even as far away as Jerusalem to come and hear Jesus teach, and we read the specific text that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That means that Jesus had the Spirit of God on him to heal specifically for this day. And just then, at, while Jesus was teaching, so right in the middle of Jesus' talk while he was teaching about whatever it was he was teaching about, just then, at that moment, some men showed up carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. They were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus. But since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd, so the room, the house was so full that they couldn't get in, they had to come up with another way. They went up on the roof and let him down on the stretcher through the roof tiles in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, you are healed. Yeah. No, it says, 
when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he said to them, why are you raising objections within yourselves? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turned to the paralyzed man and said, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, we have seen incredible things today. Now, there's a lot that I want to cover, and I'm going to try to do it in a timely manner because it is Mother's Day, and I'm sure you all are already thinking about lunch and everything you have to get to, but there are a few important things I want to bring up from this passage, and um, the first one I want to bring up is, is a, a something that might not actually be from the Bible. Have you heard this phrase, when God closes a door, he opens a window, right? And, and a lot of people think, well, that, you know, that, that's, that's, just, that's just God. I mean, God, God when, when a door closes, when, when a door closes, he's going to open up another path. He's going to make it clearer. So even though all the doors you've knocked on are locked, God is going to open a window. Well, that's not in the Bible. And it very well may be unbiblical. Anyone know where that line comes from? Sound of music. Somebody said over here. Yeah, it's from the sound of music. So um, it's, it's not really biblical advice, and I want to look at that just, just a little bit because sometimes I think, and when I shared my notes with the staff, Becky brought up this point, that, that um, when, when we come upon closed doors, our response is to sit around and pray and wait for God to open a window. Right? I mean, we, we say, okay, well, well this door is closed, so my response is, well, I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and God is going to open a window. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that really a biblical way of living? See, I think when we have this kind of view, it gives us this view of God that he's some kind of mad scientist, and we're all mats or, or mice, rats or mice in a maze. Like, like God is just this mad scientist up above on the maze, and he just sl- you know, slam and shut random doors to see how we respond. Oh, let's see what he does when, when I shut this one, see where he goes. Oh, this one's a dead end. You know, what's he going to do now? We kind of have this view that God is looking down on us in a maze and just observing us to see how we are. But that's not how God is. That is not who God is. He has much better plans for us than that. What's your approach to close doors. How do you respond when the door is shut? And it's shut for a good reason. The door is closed for a good reason. There's no more room. There's no more space for these guys to get in, into the building, and so there's just nothing that they can do. Everyone is already jam-packed in here, probably shoulder to shoulder, shoulder listening to Jesus talk, and, and they just couldn't get inside. But these guys are different. These guys weren't going to take no 
for an answer. From Mark's account, we learn that there are four guys carrying the guy on the stretcher or the mat. We don't know how far they came, but we know they had to carry the guy the whole distance. And these guys weren't going to take no for an answer. There's no more room in here. Sorry. Well, it just wasn't going to work. Get yourself in the mind of the guys carrying the guy on the mat. We carried this guy all the way here. There is no way we're carrying him all the way back. Besides, if anybody can do it, then this guy can do it. I mean, we've taken this guy to other healers and doctors. We've, we've brought him to a lot of people to try to get him healed, but no one has been able to help him. But if anyone can do it, this is the guy. And you can imagine from the four guys talking, it's like, you thinking what I'm thinking? There's another way in. I really wanted to illustrate this this way, but uh, we don't really have the money to do this right now. So, but I mean, imagine, imagine right now, if we, right in the middle of our teaching, somebody just kind of turned on a saw and just started cutting a hole through the roof, right? And then, and then you know, I, I, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to compose myself and carry on as though nothing is going on and teach, but then there's these guys lowering this guy on a mat down, down through the ceiling. I mean, what is going on? Right? I mean, you, you would just, you just have to imagine that this is literally insane. This is, I mean, the, 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 the passage talks about taking out roof tiles and, and you know, so, the, so they're literally deconstructing whoever's house this is, who, who knows whose house it is, but they're literally deconstructing the roof of this guy's house. Maybe they put it back, maybe they didn't, who knows, but they're taking apart the roof of this guy's house and they lower this guy down on a stretcher down through the roof of the house, literally right in front of Jesus. The gall. Does it feel like all the doors are, you know, kind of locked? Like you've been kind of wandering through life and, and you've been knocking on all these doors and you've just gotten so consumed with trying to get into something, you don't care what it is, that you're just going to go to whatever door opens first and as soon as that door opens, you go in no matter what it is. Have you stopped to think about what you're trying to get to? See, a lot of times I think we just we go through doors in life looking for some kind of purpose that, that when we get through this door, when we get through that door, when we get through the next door, we're going to find the purpose for our lives and everything is going to find a kind of fall into place and make sense. But then we open that door and we get what's inside that door and then all of a sudden whatever was inside that door doesn't measure up and so we need to go to the next door and the next door leaves us disappointed and the next door leaves us disappointed and we keep going from door to door trying to find the purpose purpose for our lives without thinking about what's behind the door. Are we knocking on the right doors? Have you ever stopped to think, am I trying to get through the right doors? Are you looking for Jesus on the other side of the door? What is it you're trying to get to? What is it you're trying to find behind the door? But now let's get back to the story. Let's imagine 
that, that, this is, that this is the room where Jesus is teaching, and, and he's been in here teaching, and this room is just packed full. I mean, <clears throat> just jam-packed. We've, we've had it jam-packed uh, a time or two, not for, for one of our church services, but for <laughs> a nursing uh, celebration ceremony thing that we had here a few years ago, and there were like 300, 400 people packed in here wall-to-wall out in the lobby. I mean, it was just the most people that I think we could possibly squeeze in here <clears throat> at one time. And imagine if you're in here and it's like that and somebody tries to come in and you're already on the inside. And then you see them cut through the roof. How are you going to respond? It's like, I mean, we got here early. We came early to get our spot. We, we were here ahead of time. We have been planning this journey. We have prepared for this journey so that we could be here on time to hear this guy talk right now. And these guys, these four yahoos from who knows where, probably Nazareth, you know, these guys just think they can cut through the roof and drop in like, 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 I mean, come on. How would you respond? I mean, I think I'd be sitting there like, um, do you guys need me to intervene? I mean, I can kick them out. I mean, I, I notice you don't have any security around here, but I'm a pretty big guy, and I'm not afraid of too many guys, although there are a few guys in this room that would definitely scare me if I came in, in uh, contact with them in a dark alley, but I'm not going to point them out. <laughs> they do have the same last name. But I think I'd be, I'd be trying to get the guys out. But how did Jesus respond? Jesus' response was, when Jesus saw their faith, he said. Jesus didn't get angry. Of course, it wasn't Jesus' house, so he doesn't really care. You know, but you know, he didn't get angry. He didn't get mad. When he saw their faith, he responded. It's an interesting word. Now, I want to go back to that and read that again. I don't know if you caught that the first time because this really stuck out to me while I was, while I was studying this. Verse 19 to 20, But since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on the stretcher through the roof tiles right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, or friend, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Whose faith did Jesus see? Jesus saw the faith of the guys lowering the man through the roof, right? I mean, they were the ones that were visibly displaying faith that if they could get their friend in front of Jesus, Jesus could heal this man. But, but when Jesus saw their faith, he looks to the paralytic on the mat and says, your sins are forgiven. What did their faith have to do with his sins? I wrestled with this quite a lot. I actually did some, some reading in, in lots of different parts of the Bible, and this is what I'm coming to the conclusion of, is that we're a lot more connected to one another than we thought we were. The way our lives intertwine with other people, not just believers, but with other people on this planet, is a mystery that only God understands. 
When we gather together in a room like this on a Sunday morning, we're not just, we're not just gathering together a bunch of individuals, but we're actually coming together and mingling together in a way that only God can understand. That, that we're actually connected and interconnected in ways far outside our imagination. <clears throat> and I think that's part of the problem. I think that's also part of the tactic of the enemies. He wants us to think that we're lone rangers. We are individuals in this fight by ourselves. But that's not really how it is. <clears throat> we're not lone rangers. Because when Jesus saw the faith of the guys carrying the guy on the mat, he forgave the sins of the guy on the mat. Maybe it was all of them. Maybe the guy on the mat was included in it. Maybe he, maybe he stirred up his friends to get his friends to take him to see Jesus. We don't really know all of that. Maybe it was just the, the faith of the friends. But one way or another, their collective faith brought about the forgiveness of this man's sins. That is a big deal. Why is that such a big deal? Because I think we often underestimate the effects of our faith on the lives of the people around us on a day-by-day basis. That we are around people day in and day out who don't know God and who do know God, and we underestimate the effect our faith has on the lives of others. Have you thought about the effect your faith has on the lives of people around you, that that God might be using your faith to save somebody else? That God wants to use the faith you already have in him to give the gift of faith to someone who does not yet have it in him. That there are people in your life right now who are currently living in rebellion against God. They've chosen to stand up to God and say that they are, they are better than God, but because of your faith, they will be forgiven and brought into the kingdom. And I think that's the whole design of how it's supposed to work. My faith can lead to someone else's forgiveness of sins. I'm not forgiving them, but my faith leads them to the place where they can be forgiven. Why? Because faith expresses itself in works. Faith expresses itself in works. In fact, I'm going to argue for the next few minutes that we have gathered here today that if your faith is not visible in your life, it is not faith. I know it's a real lighthearted, fun, happy, happy topic to talk about on Mother's Day, but I thought I'd rather share the truth than just try to leave you feeling nice and warm and fuzzy. So um, if our faith is not visible, it is not faith. We often think of faith in a different way. I think a lot of us think of faith as something to fall back on. This uh, last week, we were blessed to be able to go and spend some time in Sun River, and uh, we were in the pool, and I was in the pool with the kids, and and uh, there, there's you know, they, especially the older kids, they they know how to swim, but it's just you know more fun maybe to be in there with a life jacket if you can just float around. Of course, I didn't wear a life jacket because it was cold enough above the water that I didn't want to be out of the water at all. So I, I spent the whole time with the water to right here just because that was where I was comfortable. And, uh, but, but, you know, when you've got a life jacket on, you can just kind of play around 
and do whatever you want and take all kinds of risks and do all kinds of ridiculous things that you probably wouldn't normally do if you didn't have the life jacket on. And I think that's how a lot of us think about our faith. We think of it as this kind of safety device to catch us when our own plan for our life has left us wanting. Like, like our faith is, is just this thing, okay, I'm going to go through life, I'm gonna knock on whatever doors I want, I'm gonna look for all the stuff that I want to find in life, but when that doesn't work out, I've got my faith. Like, I'm gonna pursue this, and, and I'm gonna pursue this thing for now, and, and if it works out, then, then great, and I'm gonna get what I want in the end, but if not, then I can just kind of fall back on my faith. I've got my life jacket on, I'm good. Faith is supposed to give us confidence to act in ways that we wouldn't normally, normally act, but it's not supposed to give us selfish pursuit of what we want in our life. That's not the point of faith. I think that's where we've maybe gotten out of whack. If Jesus is... The boat, imagine we're, we're out in a boat. We're going out fishing with Jesus just for fun, an old-fashioned rowboat, no, no motors, no electricity, no gas engines. But if Jesus is the boat, the lifeboat, the, you know, the one saving us, and he's the, the one that has brought us up out of the water, then faith, I would say, for illustrative purposes, is the oars. Faith moves. Faith works. Faith is visible. Faith is not just something you have and keep private in your own mind and in your own thoughts and in your own life. Faith is actually something that you put to work and gets things moving. Faith is something you can see in response to something you cannot see. So we've, we've, we've limited the idea of faith to being a blind faith, and it's just something that I have in my mind that you can't really see, but faith is something you can see in response to something you cannot see. Hebrews 11, chapter 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Literally, this word substance means foundation. It, it, is, it is a picture of the foundation of our hope. Our hope is built on faith. It means to put under. It's the substructure. It's, it's that which has a foundation. It is firm. It, it is that which has actual existence as part of the definition. Faith is the actual existence and foundational form of the things that we hope for. Faith is the actual existence and foundational underlying building up form of the things we hope for. In other words, it is real. It is also the evidence of things not seen. It's being convinced of what we do not see. We, we, we live by faith all of the time. There are things that we understand by faith that we cannot see all the time, but for some reason when it comes to God, we think that the same rules don't apply. We know that the law of gravity is a real thing. I cannot see gravity, but all of us know if I step off of this, I'm gonna drop down. I know that by faith because that is the law of gravity. I can't see gravity, but that does not mean it is not real. 
It's the evidence. We know gravity is real because of the evidence, right? What is the evidence that gravity exists? It pulls me down. I can't see gravity, but I can see by the evidence that there is such a thing as gravity. Now, maybe you're one of those people that thinks, well, gravity isn't real, and if you had the mental power, you could overcome it, and I would like to see you try, so please come up here and be my guest. Oh, okay, right. Faith is something you can see in response to something you cannot see. I can't see gravity, but I can see the evidence of it. Jesus saw their faith. Did you catch that in the text? Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. He didn't hear their faith. He didn't feel their faith. He didn't read their hearts to know that they have faith. He saw their faith. That's because faith is something you can see in response to something you can't see. Jesus could see their faith, and the reason he could see their faith is because they were acting on their faith. It was not just something they held privately to themselves. They were actually acting on their faith. James chapter 2, verse 18 says, But some will say, You have faith, and I have works. James says, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith, or show you faith by my works. Faith can be seen. Faith is a gift of God. We talked about that a while ago, and I don't have a lot of time to dig into that. But when we receive this gift of faith by God, it is an invisible gift, but it will work itself out in visible form. The working out of our faith is the visible evidence of our faith. If someone were to come into our lives this week and do a faith audit based on what we did and how we lived, what would they say about our faith? And I would also ask, is your faith causing you to act on behalf of someone else in your life who needs help? Is your faith causing you to work on behalf of someone else who needs help or who needs Jesus, who needs their sins forgiven? Is faith working itself out in your life in this manner? Are you seeing the visible expressions of this kind of faith in your life? See, Jesus saw their faith and forgave the man's sins. But that's not the only thing we see that's happening in this story. This is a great story. Lots of uh, amazing things happen here. But but there's this whole other half of the story. Half of the text is is devoted to the man on the mat getting his sins forgiven and getting healed. But half of the text is devoted to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and how they respond to what's taking place. Verse 21 The experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They literally began, as we are going to read, to think in their hearts. They were thinking these thoughts about Jesus in their hearts, that that who is this man who's uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this guy think he is? He can't forgive sins. 
They began to think in their hearts. What's in your heart right now? What are the thoughts that are coming up in your heart? Not in our minds. Yes, we think with our minds, but these are deeper thoughts. These are underlying thoughts that rule and govern our entire lives that are coming up, that, that, that Jesus is addressing here. What is coming up in your heart right now as we're talking about this? Is there something coming up that is causing you to think, who is this guy? Jesus can't forgive sins. Who do these guys think they are? They don't deserve to be in here. We deserve to be in here. What are we thinking in our hearts? See, Jesus saw the faith of the men by their actions, but he also knew what was in the hearts of the religious leaders. Jesus, notice, he, he, they didn't verbalize these things. These were not things that they actually expressed in audible form. These were things that Jesus perceived from their hearts. They began to think to themselves, not speak to themselves. And Jesus saw the condition of their hearts. Jesus knew the condition of their hearts and that condition was bondage. The condition of their hearts was bondage. They were literally enslaved to their religion. They were in bondage to the religion of their day, and that religion was rooted in their hearts, and that religion caused them to question Jesus' authority, who was the promised Messiah, who they had been themselves waiting for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Jesus, the promised one, was standing in their presence in front of them, and the condition of their hearts kept them from seeing who he was. God is after our hearts. Our hearts drive everything in our lives. Out of our hearts is where everything comes from. I want to give the example of, of this. You know, hearts can, can drive us to do things that are way outside our comfort zone and our ability. And heart is the reason I like college football over the NFL. And I'm not going to dig into this a lot because I know it's Mother's Day and mothers don't really care about football. But, but I like college football so much better than the NFL because when you watch the NFL, it's like watching a bunch of businessmen out there in suits negotiating a contract on the field, right? I mean, they get out there and they play, and some of them, I think, have horrible attitudes and they shouldn't be allowed on the field, but that's not here or there. But, but they, you know, they go out and they kind of bust somebody up and they knock them flat on the ground and then they help them back up and they shake hands and they chit-chat on the way back to the line. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? That's not how you play football. I'm an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, grew up in Ohio, which means I, <clears throat> I shouldn't use that word, strongly dislike Michigan. I'm a pastor, I'm not supposed to hate, and I, you know, if you hate anybody, you've murdered somebody, that's what Jesus says, so effectively, if I say I hate Michigan, then I've effectively murdered an entire state, so I don't want to go quite that far, but, but I strongly dislike <coughs> Michigan and when, when Ohio State plays Michigan, I'm not even supposed to be saying that word if I'm a real Buckeyes fan. It's that team up north is what we say. We don't say the M word. It's that team up north. And if we're playing that team up north, you know, then when you come out on that field, you're full of fire and passion to destroy the enemy, right? 
Full, I mean, you may, you may, you may destroy your entire career with, an, with a career-ending injury, but you will have defeated the enemy, and it was all worth it, right? It's the condition of our hearts. What's the condition of our heart when it comes to our relationship with God? Is it, is it driven by this business-minded approach that I'm going to come to God and, you know, you know I'm just going to kind of come and I'm going to cross my T's and dot my I's and I'm going to balance the bottom line and I'm just going to kind of make everything work out in the most commonsensical business-like approach. And so at the end of the day, me and God are good. And, you know, so, so God gave me this and so I'm going to give him that and I want this from God so I have to give this to God so that I can get this from God and I want to open up this door, so if I want to open up this door so I can go get this thing from this door, then I need to do these things X, Y, Z for God so that I can get permission from God to go open up this door, and we treat our relationship with God as this exchange between business partners, and that is not what God had in mind at all. What he had in mind was this heart-changing, completely reinfiguration of our dead hearts to life, and this heart just becomes a life in us that drives us with passion to go out and pursue the things of God with fire as though we have an enemy to defeat because we do. What's in our hearts? We see what was in the hearts of the religious leaders of that day. They were what their hearts were full of. See, apart from God, our hearts, our hearts are for ourselves. Apart from God, before God gives us a new heart and, and turns our heart of stone into a heart of flesh, before that, our hearts are deceptive, selfish, and manipulative. That is what our hearts do. You all know this. I know this from personal experience, right? That, that our hearts manipulate us all the time. Our hearts are selfish all the time. Our, our hearts are deceptive all the time. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Interesting. All the way back in Jeremiah, the connection between faith and deeds is there. That God examines our hearts and he what does he? He rewards each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. When faith has changed our hearts, it must become evident in our lives. That's what this story is about. It's about real faith. It's about real faith over religion and how real faith defeats religion every time. Real faith starts in the heart and works itself out in our behaviors because whatever we believe in our hearts will eventually become a behavior in our lives. Whatever we believe in our hearts will eventually become a behavior in our lives. We see this in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law going on right now, that the condition of their hearts had led them to a place now where they're standing before the Messiah and they're questioning his authority. The heart's of the religious leaders were wrapped up in self-righteousness and oppressive power, and many of their hearts would never be open to accepting Jesus as the Messiah. What's the condition of our heart? Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. 
Everything you do flows from your heart. So if we have actions in our lives that we don't like, we need to check our hearts. If we have habits and attitudes and thought patterns in our lives that we don't like, we need to check our hearts. What, what is in our hearts? What are we really believing in our hearts? Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45, we did a whole series on this. It's such a great verse. It says, no, tree bears, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Whatever is in your heart, whatever your heart is full of, whatever your heart is full of is what will grow up and overflow out and be produced in your life. Whatever is in our hearts is going to become evident in our lives. Whatever we believe in our hearts will eventually become a behavior in our lives. So if our heart is full of religion, religious behavior will be produced in our life. That's what will be evident. If our hearts are full of ourselves, then ourselves will be evident. It will become evident that we are all about us, all about me and my heart. If our heart is full of sin, that will become evident in the way we live our life. It will be manifested in our actions and behaviors. And by necessity, if our heart is full of God, it must become evident. If it has not become evident in our life, then I would argue that do we really have God in our hearts like we thought we did? Or do we have religion? Do we have ourselves? Do we have sin? Is there something else? So what's your heart full of this morning? What's my heart full of? What is being expressed in your life? What is evident in your life? It, it, that's what our heart is full of. That's, that's how we know. The evidence of the unseen is what we see. The evidence of what is unseen in our hearts is what we see in our actions. And so we may be thinking, oh, you know, I've got, I've got Jesus, I've got God, but then we see all of the evidence in our lives is maybe that's not true. Or we, 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 we want to have had God, but there are just these other things that we can't quite give up. So what's the point of this whole story? What is the point of this, of this being in Luke's gospel? What's the focus? Why is it here? I think there's a very clear reason why it's here. Chapter 5, verse 23, says, Jesus says, Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? <clears throat> Which do you think is easier? Which is easier, to, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to someone who is paralyzed, stand up and walk? Which is easier? Jesus gives us the reason. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So the reason he's about to do what he's about to do says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The reason I'm about to perform this miracle in the presence of all of these witnesses for everyone to see is so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says then to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, 
take up your stretcher, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Why would Jesus forgive the man's sins before he healed them? This is a question that I think we have to wrestle with because when they lower the paralyzed man down through the ceiling, their expectation is they're going to get him in front of Jesus and Jesus is going to make him walk again so we don't have to carry this guy home. But Jesus saw their faith and said, your sins are forgiven. Why would Jesus forgive the man's sins before he healed him? A lot of times in life, I think we place our own physical comfort ahead of our need for forgiveness. We think that the most important thing in the moment is how I feel right now. Did a lot of yard work yesterday, was out in the sun for most of the day. How I feel right now is not so good. My back is sore. I should have put on sunscreen, got crow's feet. See that? I mean, how I feel is toasted and fried. And we place our physical comfort ahead of our need for forgiveness. It would be real easy for me to, man, my back just hurts. God, are you even real? Sounds extreme, but we do that, don't we? I'm in physical, excruciating pain right now in this moment. And that physical pain is taking over everything. It's the most important thing about who I am right now. And my desire for the physical pain to be taken care of trumps my need for forgiveness. I don't really care about the condition of my heart. I just want to feel better. God, if you're real, you would heal me. That's not where Jesus started, was it? Where did Jesus start? He started with the condition of this man's heart. The condition of this man's heart, just like our hearts, is more important than the condition of our body. Now, it's interesting. Rob was was teaching me about this passage. In this day, the people who were paralyzed were often considered to be receiving a judgment from God because of sin in their lives. That was maybe not always, but often a correlation that they had done some kind of sin in their life that deserved to be paralyzed, and that's why they were paralyzed. They were being judged. Now, this is interesting, because by the standards of the religious leaders, by the standards of the religion of the day, this man's sin produced paralysis in his physical body. So by the standard of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who were in there, this man was paralyzed because of sin in his life, so he was receiving his judgment for his sin. Starting to see the connection? Let's draw the lines a little bit closer. So Jesus then looks at this man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgave the man's sins. Then he healed the man. He was receiving the judgment for his sin and the paralysis in his body, but he forgives the man's sins, and then he heals the man. When the man's body was healed, he got up and he put faith, the new faith that he must have had in that moment, he put that faith 
that he had in his heart because he had been forgiven in his heart right into action in his physical body in the plain view of everyone in the room. Verse 24 says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is why Jesus is doing this. This is the whole point. This is the whole purpose. So that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to say what I said I had the authority to do. He turns to the paralyzed man and says, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. And the guy sat there and twiddled his thumbs and thought about it for a while, trying to decide if he was going to actually do what Jesus told him to do. Okay, God, I know you told me to do this thing. But if I do this thing, I mean, what if I try to do this thing and it doesn't work? I mean, there's all these people around. They're all staring at me. They're all judging me. They've all made some kind of decision about the kind of guy that I am because I'm in here on a mat. They don't, they don't really know who I am. They've just judged me from the outside. And if I try to do this thing and it doesn't work, it's just going to confirm everything that they thought about me. Should I do it? It says immediately. Jesus says, get up. I better lay out. I shouldn't do this because I might not be able to get back up. (laughs) What did Jesus say? He says, get up take your stretcher and go home. And immediately, he just gets up. This is the closest thing to a stretcher. This man who had been paralyzed for who knows how long gets up, immediately gets up, and picks up. He has not only the strength, the miraculous strength to stand up in legs that had probably atrophied and been weakened by years of laying around and not able to move, but he also has the strength to pick up his stretcher. This is one of the reasons I like this translation over the idea of the mat, is that they had a stretcher that they carried him in on. A stretcher is going to be a little bit harder to pick up, but he, he gets up and he picks up not just a little piece of carpet that they had carried him on, but a stretcher, and he tucks it under his arm and he walks out the door that he was not allowed to enter into. He just walks out in front of all the people that said, no, you can't come in. (laughs) See you boys later. He immediately got up and physically expressed in his body the change in his heart. That's because when Jesus forgives your sins, You have the faith to stand up and walk. When Jesus forgives your sins, you have the faith to stand up and walk. Are we coming to God, even coming to God and knocking on the doors of God for the right reasons? Like, do we we want what's on the other side of the door or do we want God? Do we want that... I don't know if this is the right door. There's the thing I've been really wanting for a long time. I'm 
I'm hoping somebody's on the other side and they're just asleep and this thing that I want is really important and if I knock long enough, I'm eventually gonna wake them up and I'm gonna get God to respond to me one way or another because this is something that I really want. Are we coming to God hoping first for the miracle or are we coming to God hoping first for the forgiveness? Do we want God to take care of our physical pain first and then we'll have the faith to believe in him or are we asking God to forgive us because we know the condition of our hearts is to stand against God and we're rebelling against God and our lives and not putting our faith in him and what we really need is forgiveness. And if we can get forgiveness, none of the, none of the other stuff matters. But the story doesn't end just with forgiveness. Everyone then sees now the visible expression of the inward change that this man experienced. And verse 26, astonishment seized them all and they glorified God. They were filled with all saying, we have seen incredible things today. We have seen incredible things today. What did they see? They saw a heart that was changed and they saw hearts that were rotten. They saw the changed heart exercise faith by the man getting up and walking and they saw the rotted hearts rebel and stand up against Jesus. They would have been good if Jesus didn't read minds, but you know, Jesus read minds and he exposed their thoughts to everyone so everyone in the room heard what all of the religious leaders were thinking. And so... They saw the contrast. They saw the contrast between faith and religion. What was the purpose of healing this man's body? I don't think it was primarily for the man. I think the man was an object lesson for what Jesus wanted to share, what he wanted to teach. He cared about the man. Obviously, he had compassion on the man. But the reason he did what he did was so that people could see that Jesus can forgive sins. And if your sin is what keeps you from being in the presence of God and your desire is to be in the presence of God for all eternity, isn't that more important than your physical condition? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. The point was to see that Jesus had the authority to make our hearts righteous before God. That was what Jesus was communicating, that he is the Messiah. He has the authority to cleanse our hearts from all unrighteousness and to wash us clean by the blood of his own sacrifice that he would make for us so that we could stand before God and be in his presence and be in right relationship with him, which was not possible before and was the, pr the product of the, all of the religious systems before was keeping a distance between us and God because we could not fulfill the righteous requirements in our own strength. But Jesus came and said, Said, I forgive you. I have the authority to fix all that has been wrong. Just to teach those who are around, teach the Pharisees, those who are observing that he had the authority to forgive sins. And it's interesting, let's tie this back. If this man's paralysis was the result of sin in his life, And if Jesus forgave this man's sins, the physical evidence that would prove to the Pharisees who believed this man's physical condition was the result of his sins, 
would be what? For the man to get up and walk. If Jesus forgave the man's sins and he healed the man's body, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would see with their own eyes the proof, the evidence, not only of the man's faith, but that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus has the power to heal. Well, a couple quick points. We're going to wrap this up. What can we learn for our lives from this story today? First, God doesn't want to just address our actions. He wants to change our hearts. The Pharisees and the religious leaders had spent lots of time acting religiously, and yet their hearts were full of sin. We've been talking a lot about how faith has actions. Faith is evident in our lives, but at the same time, it is not just the religious behaviors that we perform for our own benefit, but when our hearts are changed, it will change our actions. So it comes back down to the condition of our hearts, the why that is driving what we're doing. Are you here at church on this Sunday because it's a religion that you must keep up and you come once or twice a month so that you can feel better about yourself? Or has God actually changed the condition of your heart so that from your heart you want to come and be where God is? Because whatever we believe in our hearts will eventually become a behavior in our lives. And if you don't really believe in God, the behavior in your life will say, uh, you don't believe in God. You won't be at church. You won't be reading his word. You won't be praying. You won't be worshiping. There won't be evidence in our lives that God has changed our hearts if he hasn't. Because faith is something you can see in response to something you cannot see. So I'd ask us, how are we responding to Jesus right now? How are you responding to Jesus in this moment in your heart? In your heart, are you responding to him like the man on the mat who has just had his sins forgiven and now you want to stand up and walk? Or are you responding in your heart like the religious folk in the room and, and ah, who do you think you are? The picture, it's amazing. The effects of sin are paralysis. The effects of a sinful heart is a life that does nothing. And this actually was the effect of the sinful hearts of the Pharisees. They were doing nothing that God desired of them. They did all the religious duties, all the religious practices, all the things that they thought they were supposed to be doing, but in the end, they didn't do what God desired of them because God desired their hearts. They were paralyzed. But when God forgives us, when God actually goes in and gives us a new heart and restores the condition of our heart, the effects of that are the effects of grace, which is what God is offering in forgiveness. When God forgives us, he gives us grace. And when he forgives us, that is going to produce something that means we will walk and exercise our faith. When God changes our hearts, we exercise our faith. What is the condition of your heart this morning. Let's stand together. <clears throat> I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes.
with no one looking around, I just want to ask, if you're here today and you'd say the condition of my heart is more like a Pharisee than it is the paralytic on the mat, and I want Jesus to forgive my sins, I want to receive his gift of grace so that I might walk in his life today, that I might go from this point forward, pick up my mat and walk. I might pick up my stretcher and go walk and exercise my faith that I've been given in Christ. That that I've been dead before now. I've been performing my own religious practice and duty and what I need is for God to come in and change my heart and so I'm receiving his forgiveness this morning and as a response to that grace, I'm going to go out and exercise my faith. If you're here this morning, and you would say that that's you, that's where you are. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. You can put your hands down. i just ask everyone in this room, you don't have to pray it out loud, but just pray with me in this prayer. Heavenly Father, I understand that I have sinned against you. That my, the condition of my heart is rebellion and, and selfishness. That if it is not for you, if you don't do a work in me, I have no hope. I am without hope in this world. So God, I need you to come and cleanse my heart, to purify my heart, to give me a new heart capable of producing faith in my life. Father, I receive this gift of faith that you're giving to me by the work that you've done by sending your son to die on the cross to pay the price that my sins deserved. I receive this gift and I commit my life from this point forward to following after you with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. I thank you for this gift and I'll live my life in response to it. Father, for all of us, as we leave this place in a few short moments, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would show us what's being produced in our lives, that that you would help us to observe the evidence and to just see what is going on in our life. And I pray, Father, for those areas of our lives where there are things being produced that aren't of you, that there are things being produced that you don't want, that you would come once again into those areas of our hearts that we're trying to hold back for ourselves, those areas of our hearts that we're just not ready to let go of yet, that you would come in and give us a new heart and that you would fill our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to now live out this kind of life, that you would, by the power of the resurrected King, help us to now go out and exercise and live out our faith in the days and week ahead that we would be drawn more to you, drawn more to knowing you, and that we would stop knocking on all the doors that don't lead to you and just go to that one door that does, and that you'd give us the persistence and the desire to get into that room no matter what it takes. Even if we have to cut through the ceiling, we're going to come in and be where Jesus is. And Father, I pray that that would be a desire that consumes our lives, that we are driven to want to be where you are, and as we are where you are, you lead us then to do what you want us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.